Welcome back to Meet St. Louis, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes and introduce you to the chefs, brewers, small business owners making a difference here in our city. I'm your host, Alexis Zotos with KMOV. So there are a lot of ways to impact social change. And for many years, Martin Cassis tried to make a difference through politics. But now he's turning to superheroes for help, the comic book kind. He opened Apotheosis Comics on South Grand last year. It's a new adventure for the man who left his home in California to work as an intern in the White House back in the early 2000s and spent nearly two decades working on political campaigns. But the goal is still the same, making a difference in his community. This time though, it's by opening up a space where he hopes everyone feels welcome. Martin and I talked a lot about comics during this episode, about how the industry is changing, and that includes becoming more welcoming and more diverse. But it's interesting to open up a comic book store during a time when Amazon and other online retailers are making it very difficult for small local businesses to thrive. But he takes that as a challenge. And, you know, we also talked about just why this California native decided to stay in St. Louis and what really made him fall in love and fall in love enough to build a life here and continue building up his community, one comic book at a time. So let's meet Martin. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're sitting inside your comic book shop. Yeah. Was this always a dream? It was always like a fantasy in the back of my head, but I never, ever thought I would do it because it's the ultimate uh, achievement of a nerd, right? Like, where <laughs> exactly. do you go from here? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, man, it's pretty cool. I mean, as a kid, were you always a comic book fan or did it develop later on? No, I was always like the secret comic book fan growing up. I The first comic I ever got into was, it was uh, I know the issue, it was uh, Batman, um, Number 263, it was called The Many Deaths of Batman Part 3. And so it was about a comic where the guy was like, he figured out, well, the people who, in order, for, in order to become Batman, he had to be the best. So I'm going to go find okay. the people who are the best at what they do and kill them. And, then, oh, okay. and, then, and, they, and those are all the guys that train <laughs> Batman, right? And so it was this really crazy story. And uh, so I got issue three, and then like the death of Superman happened a couple of years later, and then from there I was just hooked because it was such a great story and it was just so, so dynamic and historic and everything, and it was like off to the races. But you mentioned you felt like you had to keep it as a secret as a kid. So in the '90s, yeah, being a comic book fan was like something you didn't really talk about, like mm-hmm. because it was it was also like the culture of what a comic book store was and what was around comics was like the comic book guy from The Simpsons. <laughs> you know, it was like it was the fat, overweight guy that. Uh, it isn't nice when he comes in the store. The store smells like your basement. Yeah. It's, it's like it's overcrowded. There's never any music on. The lighting's all weird. You try to ask a question about a, a character and you get like just dumped on. Um, but that was just like what the comic book store and what the industry was like really until um, like 97, 98. What do you think was the shift? Blade the Vampire Hunter. Yeah, I mean. Oh, for okay, sure. yeah, for right sure. there. Yeah. You know the answer. Yeah. yeah, it was when Blade came out. Um, you know, he was a, uh, first of all, the, the movies were great. He wasn't a well-known established character, um, and they could really do whatever they wanted with him on, on, uh, on screen. Mm-hmm. And so when he, when that movie came out, 
Um, I think in a couple years before that was, what's the movie with Samuel Jackson and M. Night Shyamalan? Ooh. Um, Unbreakable. Yes. Yeah, Unbreakable. So that, that was so like, good. That, that, that was the precursor. And when I saw that movie, I was like, oh man, this is a comic movie nobody knows about. This is like, this is great. Right. Have you seen the sequel that just came out? No, Glass? not yet. Me neither. I haven't had time. <laughs> you know what the craziest thing about owning a comic store is, is that I thought it'd be really cool because I'd have all these comics mm-hmm. that I could read all the time. But the problem is I have all these comics to read all the time. And it's like, I <laughs> So think, you can't do anything else. I do. It's like a book report every week. I've got to like know what's going on in each book and uh, uh, but you know woe is me good god right yeah that's a tough <laughs> tough life you leave so I uh, can't see the movie because I got to read these comics but I mean there really has been this <clears throat> shift and it's become completely normal and cool to yeah. love comic books yeah. I mean we're seeing it across the mainstream at the Oscars I mean Black Panther took home a lot of awards mm-hmm. How Marvel, do you, Marvel Studios is a multi-billion dollar company and they only do superhero movies right I mean how do you think that has changed over the years, and, and why do you think it will continue to grow like this? I think one of the big reasons is, is that for so long, comic books were an untapped potential for Hollywood and for multimedia. Um, you certainly had some, some video games and some other kind of non-comic uh, items back in the 90s and 80s, but nothing like we have now. Um, and a lot of it is, is that a lot of guys like me... And well, actually, let me go back to the Hollywood aspect of it. So, we have a lot of writers that can use the comic book form as a storyboard to prove a movie would be like successful. Right. Uh, there was a movie a couple of years ago called Cowboys and, and Aliens mm. uh, with Daniel Craig, and I fell uh, asleep in it. It was not good. It was a very <laughs> bad adaptation of the book. Um, but that was done as a complete, like, hey, here's a concept mm-hmm. for a movie, and then here's what it's going to look like, and then I'm going to sell a bunch of books. And the guy was able to generate enough interest in it that Hollywood did pick up. Right. But you have a lot of writers that are coming from TV, going into comics, and then going back out to movies. Josh Whedon, the director of uh, um, Avengers, uh, was the... But more importantly, Buffy. More importantly, the creator of <laughs> Buffy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you have him, you've got, uh, uh, Jason Landis, who's the son of, um, Ivan, oh, I forget his name. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> can't help you with that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> can't help you, sorry. But, um, no, so you have a lot of guys that are, are, are using the medium to kind of test out other, you know, other, um, other mediums like TV and, and film. And one of the things that people I think are now understanding is that comic books are the perfect form in between reading a book and watching something on TV. Mm -hmm. So the reason why it's so great for kids is because my daughter included, they're app-based, they read everything online, they look at everything on on, uh, their mom's and dad's phones, um, and it's all video, right? right? Uh, It's all animation. And then when they get to a book, it's a lot harder because there's an element missing. So comics are this great middle ground that can help kids read. In fact, we're starting to see a lot more schools pick up comics and graphic novels in their curriculums. Interesting. Um, and doing whole you know classes around them and, and studying them. Huh. And then that surge that we've seen across Hollywood, I mean, how do you think that's helped comic book stores? You know, it, it's actually... You think it's hurt? So here's what's going on with comic book stores right now is that everything in the store you can buy online. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we if if the movies existed and the internet didn't, comic book stores would probably do a lot better. But in the last couple of years, the uh, e-reader craze kind of came on, and a lot of comics started shifting to online. Uh, the ability to scan a comic and post it online led to a lot of pirating. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, Amazon's kind of our biggest um, uh, 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 competition right now. It's not other comic book stores or the bookstores; it's Amazon because right. you can get anything you want online. So. This is a really challenging time for comic book stores because they've got to figure out how to stay alive. 
Um, and in fact, when we started this business, one of the things when we did the market research into the industry was we were finding that so many of them were closing that we almost didn't buy the store. Right. Well, I mean, that was going to be my question because, I mean, obviously we, you mentioned Amazon, it's killing and hurting a lot of small businesses, Mm -hmm. bookstores, clothing, I mean, pretty much any kind of retail. Um, so why did you decide, well, we're going to do it anyway? We knew that we could offer more than a traditional comic book store could. Um, you know, the age range, uh, the uh, demographic of comics is between the age of 24 and 45. It's also skewing more toward female readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole segment of readers that currently aren't represented in the comic book culture. Uh, so we knew that if we could add another element to our store, um, we would have a better chance at surviving. And that element was beer and alcohol, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's a wonder drug. It's great. There you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, the profit margins on beer are a lot higher. And Mm -hmm. if people come in, um, they can still grab a beer and they don't need to buy a book. They can hang out. Um, We're going to be selling coffee starting March 1st. So we'll have coffee and beer. Um, But on top of that, it's it's also – so those are the two elements. And the third element was building a sense of community around the store Mm -hmm. and making this a welcoming environment for people to come in. You know, in our uh, Tower Grove East and Tower Grove South, we have one of, I think, probably the highest uh, populations of LGBT Mm -hmm. uh, residents in the city. And, uh, you know, we need to make a place where they felt comfortable to be in, as well as young black kids had a place to be in, as well as immigrants from the International Institute had a place to uh, feel safe in, and kids um, from all colors and all religions and all backgrounds. So we had to make a place that's very inclusive for everybody just because of where we're at. Right. I mean, so did you kind of choose this location on South Grand because of that? Or did you, you know, did this location come and you're like, well, that's perfect for the community that we're in? Yeah. So we knew we had to be on South Grand. We knew we had to be on a major street because foot traffic is vital to a a bustling retail business. Um, and so we actually bought this. This company used to be called Annie Moons Trading, mm-hmm. and it was located like a couple blocks off of uh, Grand here. I think it was like on Morganford or something down there. And um, and they did okay, but then like the business wasn't doing well, and so they decided to sell. And they actually located relocated to a 200-square-foot space down the street, which was like the size of two closets, right? right. And it was brutal. <laughs> Um, so, but we knew we wanted to stay in the area and this place was coming open. So we, we pushed to get it, uh, up to snuff and ready for use. And this used to be actually, um, yeah, I was say, a, what gym. Was this? a gym. Yeah. Oh. So like the reason why our floor sucks so bad is because <laughs> a guy was dropping weights on this thing all the time <laughs> and, uh, just chewing it up. So, um, I'm not it, sure I would have noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. But we, um, someone had a wood floor as a gym. Well, like it, before that it was a retail spot and then he moved it in. It was called Evo Fitness. Interesting. And he... It was it was weird, but um, totally weird. So, um, but it was it was white boxed. It was totally clean, so we could get in here really quick. Being on South Grand was absolutely vital. To, we weren't going to go anywhere else because this neighborhood also fits all the things that we're trying to be as a store, mm-hmm. and really we're trying to pull back and um, get back to basics about what comics actually are. Okay. And what by, do you mean? So. When um, Action Comics number one first appeared, which is the first appearance of Superman in 1938, um, Superman um, uh, arrested a guy who was beating his wife. He then uh, arrested a war prof, and then went after a war profiteer. Mm -hmm. And then he um, uh, got a guy that was uh, a negligent landowner, uh, um, landlord, 
and who was like living in a, just making these people live in a horrible housing conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman was a guy who used his powers to not only fight crime, but also as Bruce Wayne, he was giving back to the, the needy. Um, you had, uh, you know, the, 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 the very beginning of comics was all about social justice and about the little guy fighting against the big um, impossible villain, right? Mm-hmm. And what they did is they made those villains into like into mortal form or people with powers and like and so that somebody could actually fight against them. Right. But the reason why that was was that the original creators of comics were young Jewish immigrants from New York and Cleveland that, you know, were picked on in their neighborhoods and they created these alter egos that personified things that they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So that is that's always where comics have been even when with Peter Parker and Captain America and and the thing and all those guys leading down through the years it's always been about somebody fighting against impossible odds to do the best for their community around them and right now with everything that's going on in a political climate um you know there there are so many elements that are you know are that are opposed to that mm-hmm. right now the comic book industry is embroiled in a thing called comics gate which is this idea that the more minorities and women that are involved in comics is actually destroying the medium, which right. is complete garbage. Um, and I would say that if you are somebody who actually believes that about comics, that comics isn't supposed to be about you know, diversity and inclusion and uh, bringing in people who are different from you, um, I would say that they are probably haven't been inspired by the superheroes. They've probably been inspired by the supervillains mm-hmm. in all the stories. Um, in fact, that's what the X-Men were all about. X-Men were a, were a, was a parable about civil rights in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It was people born differently. Um, so that message is really important to what the store is trying to do and how we're trying to market and brand ourselves. Sure. Well, and I mean, again, I think that idea of social justice really fits in with St. Louis and, you know, especially in this neighborhood, which is an extremely progressive neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how do you think you can capture that on a local level um, because that is something we hear a lot um, on a national level in terms of comics especially when you look at movies and you mm-hmm. hear the backlash when there's a certain person cast in a role that you know people think oh that is not the way that that was supposed to right, ever look yeah. I mean how do you combat that both on a larger scale but then here just locally yeah, you know, for what we try to do in the store is, again, like we were trying to be the anti-comic book store, right? Okay. Just like that guy when I was a kid like, who I hated talking to every time I came in the store. Um, you know, when people come and walk in the door, we make them feel welcome. We ask them what they want. We ask them what they like, what the movies are watching. We try to engage them more than you'll normally get. We, we tell them they can have a seat. We have a whole section for kids to color in the back so they can hang out and enjoy and use the space. Um and so I, I, I'm probably off topic here. What you're talking <laughs> but about, you're but you're kind of speaking to that idea still of making this a safe place. Make I, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned the kid aspect because I think I hear we hear a lot of times that there's just really nothing for kids to do anymore. I mean, even at the mall, I mean, you've got to have an ID or a parent to walk around the mall. I mean, for me as a kid, as a 13 year old, I mean, that was my babysitter. I feel like was the mall. <laughs> like yeah. I just like got dropped off at the Galleria and you know, we walked around. Yeah. Um, and that is an issue. I feel like that kids sometimes just don't have someplace to go. Well, especially in a neighborhood like this, I mean, you look at a lot of retail shops that open up and they're not very family friendly or kid friendly. I mean, they're, you know, they're really, you're right. There are not, there's not a lot of places for people to go. I mean, when mm-hmm. I was a kid, I'd go to like the convenience store and then I'd walk and ride my bike down to the beach or somewhere else. Um, but like, uh, especially in, in the city, it's very hard to find those businesses because mm-hmm. the businesses that are, that are opening up are, 
you know, amazing restaurants or coffee shops or unique kind of like, you know, kitschy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really try to cover the whole gamut from like kids walking on the street, coming out of school to the 55 year old guy walking in here, used to read comics and then the dads, you know, with their kids mm-hmm. in the middle. And then also, you know, the, uh, dudes with tattoos on their faces who are all comic book people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's trying to cover as wide of a of a palette as possible. Are you also trying to break that mold that there isn't just like a comic book type? Like yeah. there's not just yeah, yeah no, you look sure. at a guy and you're like, Yep, that guy's a comic book guy. You saw to say a funny story about that. We um when I was a kid, you know, being a comic books uh, comic book fan was like my biggest secret, right? <laughs> but and I mean people because people like really look down on me like, Oh man, what a what a dork. I yeah, mean, you're so ugh. But I had that same attitude against Dungeons and Dragons oh, people. Oh, okay. Like, I was like, oh my God, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons people. <laughs> Ugh. Maybe I was projecting, trying to hide a little bit that sure. I wasn't a part of that. But, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons people come in here. We have uh, three games we run a week. You know, we have people who come in wearing suits. Mom's coming from the gym playing. We've got, um, you know, a bunch of young kids. I mean, it is truly the most eclectic group of people who are all there for the same thing. And the fact that we can kind of create a space that makes everyone feel safe and welcome is mm-hmm. kind of great because I don't know if, if they would go to another store and do that. Interesting. You mentioned in there that you used to ride the bike to the beach because <laughs> you're not from St. Louis. No. What, um, let's walk it back a bit. Um, what brought you to St. Louis? So I, um, I left California in 2000 uh, to uh, work in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and then I was uh, in Washington for four years where I met my wife. Actually, we met on a campaign, oh. and we, uh, we were put in the same house together because like, our, our, my housing fell through, mm-hmm. so I went and they put us in the same supporter housing, and then we were working all day and living together all day, so like, it just was just natural. Out. <laughs> so the best thing about my... Well, you guys could have started hating each other. That yeah, would have yeah. been like the worst-case scenario. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I never <laughs> thought about it that way, Alexis. Thanks. Uh, but the other thing, too, is that we actually had never... The luxury of never having to actually date each other. Mm-hmm. We've always just been roommates, which okay. is <laughs> But we were living in D.C., and um, we were there for four years, and you know, when you're there, it's like you go out to meet somebody, and it's... How much you make? What do you do? What can you do for me? What are you doing right now? And then if you don't like have a satisfactory answer to those four questions, like they move you're on done. and you're out. And it was just so intense. I mean, this was during the uh, it was 2005 when we left, so it was right after George W. Bush was reelected. Um, it was just a really hostile city at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, my wife took a position with Teacher America. Okay. And so we we had selected an uh, order of places we wanted to live because they give you the options of where you want to move to it was dc baltimore chicago los angeles then we just threw st louis on the list because it was close enough to chicago and Mm -hmm. she's from central illinois and then we got sent to st louis and we're like oh (laughs) what was your initial reaction oh god (laughs) that was actually i'm like well actually i got the letter and you know so we get the letter in the mail and i I, it's this big package and she's like oh my god do you think i got it and i go katie they wouldn't send you a big package if it wasn't like a yes right so I open it up and there's a there's a build a bear bear because Maxine yeah. Clark was, was on the board, and it said you know congratulations you've been selected to serve in Teacher America St. Louis St. Louis, and she said what? And I go yeah, I'm like oh okay, and then we we drove across country and moved out here and um, she worked actually worked at Shenandoah Elementary School oh, okay. in Tarragona yeah. East, and um, I went to work for the AFL CIO and I helped elect Claire McCaskill in that first election, mm-hmm. and. Um, then 
our, our plan was always to move back to California after her time was up here in for Teach America. But then when we started looking at houses, there was like a two-bedroom condo. It was like $650,000. Yeah. And then we looked at like a house here, and it was like a hundred and forty. dollars And mm-hmm. so it was like really in, in Tower Grove East. It was like not even uh, no contest. So we, we decided to stay. And What was that conversation like? I mean, you, you were going to give up uh, you know, some sunshine on the beach and, and stay yeah. here. I suspected my wife's original plan was like, if I get with this guy, he's going to take me to California eventually, <laughs> which would be great. Uh, because she, we, who, who doesn't love California? Right. Um, but then, like, we started talking about it. And at the time, I had just started a new business called Front Yard Features, and we did outdoor movies. Mm-hmm. So there's inflatable movie screens you took out to neighborhoods and showed uh, movies for free. And uh, so I was kind of in the middle of that. And, you know, we had just started meeting people and uh, came to love St. Louis. And, and, like, I think like everybody else, we just decided to stick around. What about St. Louis, you know, made you fall in love so i'm from a town that was built in 1975 and everything there is new and boring um but st louis is steeped in such history uh everywhere you go there's there's a great story behind it you know my house was built in uh, 1907 and it was actually one of the first houses well not not one of the first houses in the neighborhood but also no that's not true either (laughs) It's Just one of the first things yeah, up here. No, no. What was it? it was, I'm trying to think what it is. It was the first. Um, ugh, I'm going to mess the story up. But basically what happened was that a guy used to hold concerts in our house. Wow. And he had one of the first radio uh, antennas, antennas okay. in the area. Wow. And How'd you find that out? So I was working in the mayor's office mm-hmm. and a guy called me on the phone because um, he had he'd done like research and uh, found I worked in the mayor's office because it was all like in the city land records. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, so I'm with the uh, Missouri Radio History Association or whatever it's called. And he's like, I just did this, uh, was re- doing some research on this thing. Your house's address came up. And uh, the guy would put uh, ads in the paper mm, that mm-hmm. said, uh, hey, I'm, we're doing these songs tonight. Show up to my house at da-da-da-da, <laughs> Halliday, and we're going to play them. And then we'll, like, broadcast them. Wow. And so this dude had this antenna mounted <laughs> to the side of the house. And he would, uh, it would broadcast out. And the article stated that people as far away as, like, uh, Arkansas and uh, I think it was Chicago could hear it. Wow. Like, it was just that powerful. That's incredible. Yeah, is that neat? But like, how? how, how <laughs> no one else really has that. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't have that in Southern California. You're crazy? No. Um, but it's also is that when I when I first moved here, and really even now, it's like St. Louis always feels like it's on the the cusp mm-hmm. of like a big turn or a shift. And I've never been in a place where there are so many people who um, are inspired to change their community as much as in St. Louis. Like mm-hmm. everyone feels like if I just do my part. Uh, we can make my neighborhood better and I'll make the city better and I'll make the state better or, or, or something. And, you know, and th- there's just such a great community vibe. Like every neighborhood has its own identity. It has its own history. You have neighbors working together. You know, I was president of my neighborhood association and involved in the neighborhood association. And then like people enthusiastically joined it and they do their part and they have block parties. And, mm-hmm. um, it's just a really great community vibe in this town. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like a lot of times when I talk to transplants, people mm-hmm. that come here. Um, we can, can, the, I, can I finish the sentence for you? Oh, yeah. Transplants are more inspired by St. Louis than residents are. Well, that is definitely true. Yeah. But you do hear people 
are confused. They're like, wow, everything is like, feels very territorial of their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned that in a positive way, but there also is a mm-hmm. negative to that sometimes. How do you think we merge those two ideas to make it both a positive and a little bit less of a negative? If this is a, a going to transition into a city-county merger no, discussion. Not. We're not go, talking about yeah, city-county yeah. merger yeah, here. I'm way in favor, but I, I don't want to get too in trouble there. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, the other thing about St. Louis, too, is that I, I've never lived in a city that is as segregated as St. Mm-hmm. Louis is. Um, you know, in Southern California, where I grew up, you know, there is, you've got Iranians, you've got Filipinos, mm-hmm. you've got Koreans, you've got Mexicans. I mean, it, it is it is very much there is a, a bigger melting pot here. And I think that in St. Louis, we get too steeped in identity politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's even affecting, you know, one of the reasons why I decided to get out of politics in the first place was that I was so tired of this us versus them kind of like mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, now you just have the the villains versus the good guys. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It's very clear who is on what team. Um, but, you know, Slaco has got a really great uh, program where they do, it's called Neighbor to Neighbor, mm-hmm. and they'll have, like, folks from, like, a north side neighborhood visit a south side neighborhood, and the same day they'll they'll go back up there. Mm-hmm. I think that we just need more people going north and south of the, the divide as much as possible. And... Um, and, and really just getting to know the people like and we, we're all fighting for the same stuff we want safe neighborhoods we want good schools um we want you know clean blocks and we don't want the houses next to us to As be the safe street sweeper came by yeah, yeah exactly yeah, 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 right blocks <laughs> uh i uh, um so i think that we all want the same things we just got to start having the same conversation i think sure. it's kind of the same problem we have in politics too is that we are fighting so hard against one another, but we're all fighting for the same thing. Right. Um, so, and you mentioned that. I mean, so you, this was kind of your way of getting out of politics was, was coming in and doing comic books. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I've had a, I, so I, I left, so I left college in 2000 to go work at the White House. Okay. And then, like, I didn't go back to college. And then I went and worked on campaigns. What and, did you study in college? Um, God damn, what did I study? <laughs> I don't even remember. No, because it was just like the first year, so I was just doing like the, uh, the basic stuff, whatever. Um, just, just general education classes? Well, yeah. Where did you go to I, school? Actually, you know, I, you know, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be California? a reporter. Oh, yeah. well. I did. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to be a reporter, and I wanted to, uh, uh, I wanted to, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Okay. So you left to go, what, did you just have an opportunity to go work at the White House, and were like, got to take it? <clears throat> well, so what happened was, was that my um, best friend's mom was a teacher at Cal State Fullerton, mm-hmm. and every, like, Friday or Saturday, we'd go out and party, and then we'd come back to his house, and we'd fall, and we'd sleep, uh, and then uh, wake up the next morning. I would always be the first one to wake up, and on Sundays, I would always watch like meet the press or uh, the talk, uh, political talk shows. And so one morning she came outside to the living room and she goes, uh, you need to like leave. <laughs> and I, I'm like, oh, oh, do you want me to? I, sure, I'll, I can go. And she's like, no, no, I mean like I, California. Like you need to get out of here. Hmm. And she's like, you, you're like, you're just wasting your life out here. You know, you're, you're not doing anything. And I know you're working at the record store and you're going to school, but like you're better than this. You got to go. Hmm. So she's like, do you, what would you think about um, getting, doing an internship at the White House? And at the time, the thought of working at the White House was so far out of my head that I thought she was talking about the White House steak place in <laughs> Laguna Beach, California. And I thought she wanted me to be a cook. And I go, you want me to, want me to become a cook? Is that, is that what you want me to do? And she goes, 
no, man, I want you to go to the White House. <laughs> so we filled out all the forms and did it, did everything. And I was like, dude, there's no way I'm going to get into this, but I'll give it a shot. And I don't want to piss Roxy off. Uh, I don't want to make Roxy mad. I don't know if, that, if that's a word that gets edited out. Sorry. <laughs> no. uh, I don't want to get uh, Roxy mad. So we did it, and uh, I got accepted. And I was actually the youngest guy in the program that year because wow. they normally take uh, juniors and, and seniors. Because you're working at the White House. You shouldn't have a freshman from college working at the White House, for <laughs> God's sakes. Uh, but nonetheless, I got in, and then I uh, um, moved out to Washington, D.C. Uh, in, what was it, 2000? Well, I guess it was 2000, January 2000, because it was the last year of the Clinton administration. And uh, I worked in the comment line greeting card office the first time, hmm. which was, so the guy, it was all the people from the United States who had a grievance with the president or wanted to leave him a comment. Probably a few of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially with Clinton. They'd yeah. call the White House, and then me and a bunch of other kids would, like, would monitor the, um, uh, the volunteers that would come in. Mm -hmm. So it was a bunch of old ladies and old guys from the, the D.C. area that would come in and man the White House phone lines. Behind them was the greeting card section, where anybody who wanted a letter from the president would mm -hmm. get a card and they would be in charge of stuffing the envelopes and putting all that stuff together. Side note to this. <laughs> I also got so many cards for family members signed by the president. Like it was like, what do you want? You, you, you want a you you birthday, wanna... <laughs> wedding, okay, what do you, whatever you got to need. So you had the power. I had the power, yeah. I had, I had a bunch of, bunch of people that uh, um, I was just giving cards out to. But... Um, yeah, so, so I did, did that. Did you kind of fall in love with politics then and there? I mean, you had said you, it had been an interest, but, I mean, did that yeah. kind of seal it for you? or? Um, you know, I, I had a I had, I had an idea that I wanted to be a, involved in public policy somehow. Um, I kind of had two thoughts on it. One is I wanted to be either speak truth to power or I wanted to change public policy. And it was really because, you know, when I was about 15 or so, and I'm going real far back, when I was about 15, um, my dad died, and our family lost everything we had. Like, we were living in a so house in California, and we lost, uh, lost that, lost the cars. I then had to go live in Texas for two years with my mom as she was trying to, like, regroup. And then, um, you know, when you go from having something to having nothing, you really understand how bad the system works for people at the bottom. So my idea was always like I wanted to do something that could help change that. And so I, I um, apparently politics got to me before I could finish my uh, media career right. or whatever. So I, uh, yeah, so after that, then I went and uh, got involved in, got involved in a couple of campaigns. Mm -hmm. And then um, I worked on a campaign in, in uh, uh, Illinois for a governor, former governor. And... Uh, who's in, now in prison <laughs> and so I went and worked on his campaign and uh and then I went to Maryland where I met my wife and I worked for the DNC mm -hmm. for a little bit and then we came out here with the AFL-CIO but um yeah I mean getting it getting to work in the White House will always sure I mean I you. think that that's got to be just one of those even if you're not in politics you can just appreciate the incredibleness of, oh my god I mean of being a part of that historic time the history of it, whichever candidate whichever oh yeah president. I mean the, the history of it is walking into the the west wing of the White House for anything mm -hmm. is amazing and I had to do that because uh after I was in the uh, half of the time I was there I was in the uh, White House uh communications and I went over to uh Oh my God! What's the name of that office? 
anyways, it was the ones that like all like they had like supplies or stuff needed for okay. other offices. So I did that for the last kind of three months of my my time there. And the first job I had was I had to go change a lampshade <laughs> in the white in the west wing of the White House because the or it just came in and it got sent over to uh, uh, our office. And so I was like, all right, I'll go do it. Yeah. So I walked over and I was like. Dude, I'm changing a lampshade in the White <laughs> in the House. This is so house. cool, man. But the best part about it was, was there was a, on the, um, I guess it would be the basement level or maybe whatever's right below the West Wing. You have to go downstairs to get to it. There's a free, there's a machine that just doles out free ice cream sandwiches and you go that out and like get a dream. Yeah. So every time I go to the West Wing, I get an ice cream sandwich and walk back. And <laughs> the best part too is when you're walking out on the, like the sidewalk going back to the, at the time it was called the old executive office building. Now mm-hmm. it's just called the. I think it's the EEOB now, which isn't as great as OEOB. Yeah. That's what it used to be called. And uh, people would, like, see someone walking, and they'd all think you're famous, and they'd, like, point and, like, wave, and you'd just do this. <laughs> you just wave Hello, right back. Hello, how yes. are you? Good to see you. I'm important. I <laughs> yes. am not just an intern. I have more lampshades to change. <laughs> I wish I'd be back later. Yeah, my knowledge of, of what it would be like to be in the White House really just all comes from the West Wing, and that's just why I feel like that I That show came out the year, I think the year before I went there. Really? Yeah. Were you a fan of the show? Uh, I hadn't seen it yet. Hadn't seen it, hadn't okay. Seen it. And I couldn't uh, stream it at the time, so I had no oh, idea right. even about it until I left. Uh, weird, a weird life of oh, not being able to stream so things. So strange. It, <laughs> I had to explain the, the concept of commercials to my daughter a no, couple of years really? ago. She had no idea about, like, she goes, she's a huge fan of Full House because of Fuller okay. House. Okay. Which is way different than Full House. Yes, I have you is. seen it? Yeah. I, I watched, like, a little bit of the beginning, and it just didn't do it for me. I know. Yeah, I definitely. When you grow up on the classic, it just, I know, and those girls got to get it together. <laughs> but anyhow, so I, uh, my daughter was like, "So, Dad, do you want you to watch Full House?" I'm like, "Well, I watch some of them." She's like, "What do you mean?" I go, "Well, like if I was home on Friday, I'd watch right. it." She goes, "What? Well, you didn't watch it when you got home?" And I go, "Well, no, so because it's probably over." Well, you could have taped it. You could have put it on a VHS. Who has money like that back <laughs> in the '90s for VHS tapes? But, uh, yeah, so the con- concept of commercials to her was like completely foreign. It's crazy. It's so funny because. Even just saying that out loud, that concept has to be so strange to someone. Like, the fact that people used to tape things and then, like, watch a tape. I mean, my grandma had just, like, stacks and stacks of tapes. Dude, when I I moved out for my first time uh, when I was 19, we we had a TV and a stack of Simpson VHS tapes we recorded. And all we watched was Simpsons for, like... (laughs) <laughs> days like there's like whole seasons of the simpsons that i had on tape that's all we watch right but so as so as as hard as it is to kind of like understand that imagine how hard it'd be to explain it to an eight-year-old right. like what an actual like you need you like need to have a vhs and be like okay like this is what's a vhs yeah she goes, dad could you well could you go next door and watch your friend's house like, if it was playing at the same time yeah you could go she's like why what like why wouldn't they like well, it's funny because we have all of our Disney movies on VHS still, and my parents, oh, wow. you know, kind of don't. Oh, and those big plastic, the big like, plastic yeah, ones, yeah, yeah. and they actually can like very vividly still remember the smell of those oh, plastic yeah, sure. things when you open them. And my dad has them, and still, and I think my mom still has them in her basement too. And she's like, "Well, you know, your kids might want them." I'm like, "What would I? How? Where would I find so something I will to tell play you. them on?" Yeah, I will, well, yeah, that's the big problem. But I will tell you that those things go for a lot. Oh, I know. Yeah. I probably should. Uh, same way, I shouldn't have ever thrown away my Beanie Babies at the time. Uh-huh. Now they're probably not worth anything. That's but correct. Yeah, there not. was that like in yeah. between time when oh, they yeah. were probably very. Well, you know, and we we a lot of folks who come here like they um, buy stuff out of nostalgia. I certainly do. But like, yeah, the, yeah the, we. And we have people who come in with all sorts of weird stuff trying to sell. Like, I mean, we haven't got any VHS tapes yet, but we will. So, so. do you guys buy comics as well as we sell? do? Okay. So, yeah, like, we don't, we don't buy. So, this is also kind of the other problem with the comic industry mm-hmm. is that um, 
the collectability is is almost non-existent in comics anymore. I mean, the reason why, why? trades are the big issue or the big way to read comics and the way to sell them, it's because you know in order for something to be worth something or have value, it's got to be rare. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why comics in the '60s and '40s and '30s are so um, expensive and sought after is because well, in the 30s and 40s, they would give them out to uh, soldiers. Right. And so they were like in Europe and they'd use them to write letters or seal stuff or toilet paper or whatever. So a lot of those early comics are just gone. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of parents threw comics out in the 60s and in the 50s. Um, so scarcity kind of breeds that, that value. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the comic book industry now, you, they print off 100,000, 500,000, or 50,000 um, comics per issue. And on top of that, then they have these variant issues. So what you have to do is, like, in order to get the variant issue, which is limited to, like, a 1,000 prints total, which would make it valuable, mm-hmm. comic book stores have to order 100 copies to get, like, certain levels of these rare books. Hmm. The problem with that, though, is that then they're then stuck with All 98 or whatever books they can't sell. So, in fact, when we bought this store, one of the problems we had was that the guy was like, yeah, well, I also have, I think he has to, like, 30,000 comics in the basement, which he did, and I was like, Geez, man, we got a lot of books. But as I started going through them, a lot of them were these retailer incentive comics mm-hmm. to like get you to buy the the, the variants. The rare ones, yeah. And we have like a whole shelf from over there, like some of the cooler ones. But we have this one where it's like, a, it's called the, it's Curse Words Number One is the name of the comic, and it's the uh, glitter. The cat glitter beard variant. <laughs> so in order to get that well, variant, that cup, sounds like a good craft beer, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so you have to like, yeah, the order like I think 250 comics to get this stupid book with a cat with a glitter beard on it, and you could sell it for like a hundred dollars. <laughs> but the problem is, is that then you go to eBay and all the other stores that got those books would then try to sell them mm-hmm. online. So you've got a double uh, saturated market, one in the real world and one online. And so a lot of stores, like they, that weight is just too hard for them to carry. Interesting. But so one of the things is when we started doing our, our um, store model and kind of our research, we decided we weren't going to get into that game. Like we're, you're going to get, you can special order from us and we'll get you that one book, but I'm not gonna, we're not going to throw those retailer games um, we're not as uh, cram-packed with product like a, a lot of other comic book stores are because we don't want to take on that liability of not being able to sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Do you find you're having to really kind of craft a new way of of doing a retail model to keep it successful? We are. I mean, you'll see right there on, that, on that, uh, the door, it says, thanks for shopping with us, thank you for shopping local. Mm-hmm. And so we recognize and we really try to reinforce this with everybody who comes in here that we know you can buy this all online, but we'd really appreciate if you bought it from us because it'll keep us around and you know, we can still do great community things like have our comedy nights, have our music nights, sell beer, play games, place where everyone's welcome. And um, we're, we do a lot where we say, I can't get that for you, but I can order it for you. Would you like us to order for you online? And you know, a lot of people are totally comfortable with the fact of paying for something now and getting it later because that's what Amazon and your right. online sales teach you to do. But if you if you order it for them and instead of them ordering it for themselves on Amazon, it's still coming through and helping support a local business. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of that stuff is is that you know, it is a lot easier for you to get it delivered to your home. We certainly understand that. But um, you are helping local businesses by ordering through them. Um, you are helping us uh, maintain community and develop a street and not have another empty storefront in some place. Um, but also, I mean, it's just... You know, we are we are adapting to the to the new world order of how shopping is done. Mm-hmm. So, we don't want to have a place that's just jam packed with with so much product we can't move. Um, but we are um, we want to have a place that 
doesn't feel cramped, but it feels open and inviting. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of comic book stores aren't that way. They're dusty and gross. So we we want to we want to so go for the opposite of dusty <laughs> exactly, and gross. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I did want to ask about this wall over here that you have of comics that are set in St. Louis. Yeah. When did you first realize? St. Well, Louis playing a role in some of these comics, and, and tell me about some of these favorite ones. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, a bunch of comics I started collecting like right after I moved here. Um, and actually, it started with this X-Men number 36 here, which men- mentions Graveling Grand. Uh, so I had that in my collection as I was reading through. I was like, oh my God, like that's right down the street from me. And I was like, I wonder if there are other St. Louis uh, comics. And so I started like just doing some research and found ones that, that, that were... Um, you know, this one here, Fantastic Four, it's like this, this, this book takes place a couple years after the arch was created. So you can kind of tell like the artist at the time didn't really know what the arch actually looked like. He's got a highway, it's behind it in front of the river. Uh, he's got some buildings behind it and people are poking their heads out the window, which is not okay. Um, you've got uh, this book here called Skyrocket. That book opens up with... Um, Green Lantern flying over Bush Stadium, and uh, that woman there, she's inspired by the fireworks at uh, Fair St. Louis. Wow! And so she becomes a like a um, patriotic superhero. Um, Justice League up there, it's a hundred-page special, it takes place in 1973. Um, Santa Claus is killed in St. Louis, and the oh, Justice no. League discover. I know another thing we have to worry about. Sad. And speaking of crime, in that Iron Man issue right there, that's right after uh, Tony Stark gave. James Rhodey, uh, the Iron Man armor for the first time, because um, t- Tony Stark had an—he's uh, an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and so he got out of control, so he had to give up the armor. He's in St. Louis visiting a friend, and while they're talking about the Iron Man armor, someone mugs them, and, oh, no. and then they take it. <laughs> uh, so that—that's that, something. This book here is called *The Son of Satan*. That's written by St. Louis uh, uh, writer uh, uh, Steve Gerber, and that book is called *The Forty Thousand Holes in Forest Park*. Uh, it stars the uh, Damien Hellstrom, who's a professor of theology at a Jesuit school in St. Louis. Oh. You know what? I don't know what that one could be, but yeah. it'll be even nameless, yeah. Um, and then Venom from the new Venom movie, that amazing Spider-Man here, he breaks out of jail and he hitches a ride from St. Louis. Uh, that Archie Galsam Pals is the one that's actually at the top there, is the one that's in um, Blueberry Hill on their wall. Oh, that's yeah. the one where... Um, you know, Archie's jalopy is discovered outside of St. Louis because because when your car is stolen, you of course do what everyone does, which you embark on a nationwide search for a car. Absolutely. And he drives from Riverdale to St. Louis and finds it. Um, he finds but, but then, a stolen car here. Well, no, or he finds he, his he new car here. He does, but he gets in the car and Joe Edwards comes out and Joe Edwards is like, "Hey, man, what are you doing?" And then he and Archie's like, "Well, I'm sorry," and walks off. Would that be your dream to be immortalized in a comic? Oh my God, that'd be so cool. That'd be so cool. I, I got to figure out that scam man. Try to get someone to do that. Got to figure that out. Yeah, we actually have a couple local artists here and writers. Um, we're, we're inking some um, locals to come back. We're inking a deal for some locals to come back for a free comic book day in May. Oh wow! I can't talk about it now, oh. but I'll leak you the exclusive. Okay, all right. Out. Stay yeah. tuned for that. That's right. But for now, we'll we'll just look for the arch and in any other episode, yeah. in other, other shoes we can. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, and it's, uh, I mean, it's fun because when people come in here, like we have a couple of beers, uh, we get talking about St. Louis, uh, we talk about comics and I think we've really got something really kind of neat here where everyone just feels great about talking and engaging on whatever. And I dig it. Especially that's, I love talking about those comics too. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
it is billed as Missouri's only comic book store and bar. You can find uh, all the different events and game nights on Apotheosis' website. You can, of course, also check it out in person on South Grand, along with a lot of other great shops and restaurants along that stretch in South St. Louis. If you enjoyed this episode, which we always hope you do, we hope you will go to iTunes and leave us a rating, give us a review. It helps us share the Meet St. Louis podcast uh, and be discovered by other people who want to meet the people making an impact in our city. This episode was produced and edited by Michael Ritter and JJ Bailey.